Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. I made the comment in the last lesson that we talked about last week that hope is one of the greatest forces in the world. And I said somewhat in passing, but not the greatest force. And that is because we've reserved that greatest force, that greatest motivator of men and women for today. And that is love. In fact, you'll remember in that famous 1 Corinthians 13, Paul concludes by saying, So now, faith, hope, and love abide these three, but the greatest of these, greater than hope, is love. Paul doesn't offer his opinion without an explanation. He explains love is the greatest of those virtues because both faith and hope, which is really just faith looking forward, will stop abiding. They are nothing but temporary measures. And they are supporting love because, as Paul says there, love never ends. So faith and hope are kind of like the happinesses that we look forward to when we think of heaven and a renewed earth. When you think of painlessness or when you think of the end of doubt or insecurity, all those things that are promised us, a great inheritance that we are going to receive when we're welcomed into glory, the road of gold that goes through the new Jerusalem, those things are not the main thing. We understand that. Those things are the environment in which love, which is the main thing, best demonstrates itself. And in that sense, faith and hope are the same thing. They're not the main thing. They are the environment in which love operates. Because presently, Christ is invisible. He's here with us right now, as surely as I am, but you don't see him. So, you have to, if you want to love him, you have to believe that he's actually here. So, faith is just the environment in which you love Christ. Similarly, hope, which is faith looking forward to eternity, when you get to eternity, hope goes away because you're not looking forward anymore. Hope is really just you loving Christ so much you want to be with him. But when you're with him, then you don't need the hope anymore. You just have the love. And that's what hope was all about in the first place. Love is the display. Everything else is a display case. It's the environment. So when I spoke the last lesson about the joy which comes from hope in Christ, I was just pointing really to one part of this bigger thing of love. To hope in Christ is to long for him in such a way that you want to be with him. It's love. And my goal in this chapter is to step back from that love as hope, which is a narrower view, and to step back and just to consider love as it is in itself, love for Christ. And my argument last week was that if you have a true hope in Christ, then you can with joy survive the death of all other hopes and dreams because you can have this hope in Christ and no more and be satisfied and as we step back from that and consider love, what we're doing is saying that love for Christ is so satisfying that it can satisfy you even if every other source of joy is gone. 
Love for Christ, and that's what we're talking about today. I find the same thing espoused in the, this passage we talked about last week, and we're going to go back there. If you have your Bible, 1 Peter chapter 1, there's some gold yet to mine here, and we'll do it now. In the middle of a discussion on hope, because that is what Peter's talking about is love as hope, hoping in Christ, he makes this comment in verse 8, though you have not seen him, and that is Christ, you love him. So his readers are rejoicing with this joy that's inexpressible and that's full of glory And a component of that is this love for an invisible, an unseen Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And the joy, as we said, is such a joy, inexpressible and full of glory, that it can satisfy you apart from any other joys. Now, when I make the argument, as I am today, that love for Christ is the missing ingredient in your full satisfaction in Christ, you might feel some reserve As if you would say, well, are we really going to base my joy on my love for Christ? Shouldn't we be basing the satisfaction in the love of Christ? Like his love for me, his perfect love. Isn't that the thing that satisfies? Not my love for Christ, that's weak. Well, we'll get to that, but here's the problem with that idea. Does Christ love you right now? Does he love you perfectly right now? Okay. Are you right now with entirely, perfectly, completely satisfied in Christ? To varying degrees. To varying degrees. So if it only rests on the love that Christ has for you, then you would expect that at all times, without any fail, you would always entirely, for every Christian in the world, be entirely satisfied in Christ. But that's not what we find in our day-to-day lives. Sometimes we're more satisfied in Christ and sometimes we're less. There's a certain fluctuation and I don't want you to think that that fluctuation in joy has anything to do with the love of Christ fluctuating towards you because it doesn't. So the missing ingredient has nothing to do with the love of Christ. It's there. It's always been there. But the missing ingredient, if you lack joy, is your love for Christ. That's where you set the focus. That has to change. So just for illustration, think about Stephen, who we talked about last week. Now Stephen, he was eventually a martyr, but he lived much of his life as an unbeliever with no knowledge of Christ in a saving sort of way. Now during that time, however many years that was for a young Stephen, did Christ love Stephen? Yes, and we know because God shows his love for us in this, and that while we're still sinners, Christ died for us. At that time, did Stephen find an immense joy in Christ's love for him? No, he didn't. So Christ's love is present, but there's no joy in Stephen coming from that love. So fast forward, at some point, Stephen is converted. He's born again. He sees the love of Christ that's been there for him for the first time. He's awakened to it. And now is there a joy in Stephen because of that love? Well, what has changed? What changed from unconverted Stephen to converted Stephen? And the change, faith has come in. And by faith, Stephen now sees that love that he didn't see before. But it's more than just seeing it. 
Stephen loves what he sees. The missing component the whole time for Stephen was not Christ's love, but it was Stephen's love for Christ. It wasn't there. But now it's there, and from that love for Christ, joy emerges. Finally, of course, Stephen is stoned. His spirit is received by the Lord Jesus into glory. And now, is Stephen satisfied in Christ? Absolutely. And why? What has changed? Not faith. Faith is now, in fact, gone for Stephen. There's no such thing as faith for Stephen in Christ anymore. He's with Christ. There's sight, not faith. But the thing that remains and now is perfected is Stephen's love for Christ. Now it's perfected and therefore this full, complete satisfaction arises. So, our joy in Christ waxes and wanes not on the basis of Christ's love for us, which is set, but on the basis, in this sense, of our love for Christ. Because if you're here this morning, Christ loves you. Whether you're a believer or not a believer, there are varying degrees, perhaps Edwards talks about that, but there is a love from Christ for you. You may or may not feel a great joy about that this morning, but I guarantee if you walked in here with an immense love for Christ, you feel a joy about that, because that's the missing ingredient. Lest anyone recoil at the thought of building your joy on the strength of your love for Christ, I'll give you the argument that kind of completes the circle. We love, says the Apostle John, because he first loved us. So I'm not suggesting to you that your love is the most important thing. Don't hear me say that. It's just that your love's the only thing that's missing. Christ's love is already there. And really, your love is something that just comes from Christ's love. We love because he first loved us. In other words, when you become a believer in the environment of faith, you see the love of Christ among his other perfections, and just seeing that isn't enough in one sense, theoretically speaking. If you just saw that, it wouldn't produce joy. But the reason it produces joy is because when you really see that, it produces a love in you for that. Because a love is when your will is inclined towards something. When you think of the demons who believe but find no joy in their belief in God, why? Because they, in some sense, see God. They see his perfections in some sense. But they don't love anything that they see. So there's no joy coming out of that. But when you see Christ and see his love and see his perfections, then the response of your heart as a believer is a reciprocal love for Christ, for the things you are seeing. So if I'm here trying to teach in a Sunday school what it means to be satisfied in Christ, you could in one sense say that this lesson of all the lessons that we'll talk about is the most important. This is kind of the heart of this class and we'll just be expounding on this the rest of the time. It is if you want to be satisfied in Christ, you must grow in your love for Christ. That is the essence of this class. Now, easier said than done. But that's why we have more lessons in this class to talk about how we grow in that and how we develop that kind of a love. Now, you might think of the situation for a little more clarification in this way. Love 
made up the whole circumstance of the Trinity from an eternity past. You know, we are Christians, we are monotheists, but very much unlike Muslims or other monotheists, because we believe in one God in three persons who for eternity in the past existed in an environment of love where every member not only received perfect love from the other two, but was reciprocating that love perfectly to the others. And that is paradise. That is in another sense, what you were created to enter into. As a rational being made in the image of God, his intention in creating you, is not to add to his own joy, it's perfect, but to give you an immense joy by bringing you into this perfect reciprocal circle of love, being loved and loving. Presently, you're being loved, halfway there. But the other side of loving, not fully there, but that's God's intention to bring you into that triune happiness, and He will do that. Now, you might say, why should we concern ourselves with kind of hair-splitting doctrines like this? Our love for Christ is for us. What's the difference? Why are we talking about this? And the reason we're talking about this is because you may feel sometimes within yourself, you won't say it because you're Christians, right? So you don't say this, but you may think subtly within yourself sometimes. Yes, I consent that Christ is completely satisfying, that he's the best there is. But when I set him next to the glamour and the immediate joys of this world, the beautiful things that I long after, men or women or whatever, when I set him next to those things, I'm not going to say this out loud, but sometimes he doesn't really seem as glamorous as those things. A little leaven leavens the whole lump, Scripture says, and a tiny decomposing fly fouls up the entire bottle of perfume. And that small and subtle thought right there, not even stated, but just it's in there, that is an immense hindrance to our joy in Christ. That little thought right there. Because I contend that when you're making decisions on a day-to-day basis, so if it's falling into sin, if it's an affair at work, if it's being somewhere else on a Sunday morning, being at athletics, doing whatever consistently, whatever the decision you're making, and in hindsight, that was a bad decision, but in the moment, that decision's not just accidentally made. That decision is coming from these tiny flies of thoughts that are in the perfume making it stink. They might be small, they might be subtle, but they're in there. And if you're going to find a satisfaction in Christ, you have to go after those subtle doubts. You have to obliterate them. And that, in fact, is my goal in this course, is to go after those subtle, subtle doubts and to obliterate them. Any thought that Christ is better, but it doesn't seem that way, those have to be destroyed. And that's our goal in this Uh, Sunday school class, of course. So, because the devil and ourselves are so good at justifying on a subtle level these kinds of small doubts, it's necessary that we analyze more closely, like we're doing now, that we think more intently, that we, so to speak, split hairs so that we're not caught unaware by his schemes. So if you don't find Christ as satisfying at present as I'm presenting him to be, what I'm saying is don't worry about it because you're the problem. Christ is not the problem. Isn't that refreshing? It's not 
as you've been doubting and wondering in your mind, is Christ really all that he's presented as? Or is this just exaggeration? And I'm saying he is all that I'm presenting him as. He is everything that scripture says. In him the fullness of deity dwells. If you don't feel that, that's your problem. Your feeler's broken. And that's what we're doing here is working on the doubts that prevent you from feeling that. Love, as I've said, is the most powerful, motivating force among men and women. And what we're working on here is promoting our love for Christ, which is enough to satisfy us completely in the absence of everything else. So let's go back here to Peter's readers, 1 Peter chapter 1, and let's think a little bit more about their satisfaction with the Savior. Notice it says they love him, so they have a love for him, but it's a peculiar sort of love, and this is where we start our argument this morning in fighting these doubts, because notice, God knows our weakness, notice what he says, though you have not seen him, I believe this is verse 8, you love him, but notice the kind of a love, you have not seen him, and you love him, you see he's invisible, this is different than all your other friendships, you don't see him. Though you have not past seen him, and though you do not now see him, and you believe in him, and we'll get into that. Now, if memory doesn't fail me, I've had um, multiple conversations, and I've appreciated the honesty of people who have told me something to this effect. Said, Bryce, I know that Christ is fully satisfying, but there's something about having a friend that you can feel and touch and talk to when I pray to God or to Christ. I pray and I, I don't hear anything audibly. I can't reach out and touch him. So yes, he's great, he's satisfying and so forth, but God has designed us for human interactions, for human friendships. Now there's a part of that that's true, okay? There's a part of that that's true, and there's a part of that that's so false. And it's that part that's so false that we want to fight again. The part that's true is... God has created us for human interactions, okay? So in that sense, we need each other, and that is good and that is right. But the part that is so false that I want to fight against is any subtle thought. You see that subtle fly that's in the perfume there? That, yes, Christ is satisfying as long as I also have satisfying human relationships because God created us for those. Or if you're looking for a romantic relationship, that is fine. You may appeal to Genesis. It's not good for man to be alone. But what I want to fight against and what Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 fights against there is the thought that God is satisfying as long as I have this thing that it's not good for me not to have. But that's simply not true. Human relationships are good, but I'm saying this joy that's inexpressible and full of glory is so good that if you had no satisfying human relationships and I hope that's not true, but were that the case, you could still have joy. Amen. And I don't want you to be stuck with any doubt of that. This kind of a thought, that in any way it's better to have a human friend, visible, present, than to have Christ as an invisible friend, this has its sort of parallel in modern pop psychology. I think we've moved past this a little bit, but it was best captured in a 1943 paper by Abraham Maslow, you may have heard of it. It's a theory of human motivation. Maslow's pyramid, if you've heard of that. 
Manslau posited that we can only reach real living, what he called self-actualization, if we have all these bottom parts of the pyramid filled out. We've got to have earthly necessities. We've got to have human relationships. We've got to have honor and love, these kinds of satisfying things. And once you have those, you can build up and you can reach real living, or what we would say right now, real joy. Christ, in the teaching of Scripture, it's completely the opposite of that. There's no precondition of human relationships for you to have a complete, satisfying relationship with Christ. Because a relationship with Christ, though you have not seen Him, is still far better than any of those visible relationships. Paul said, not that I'm speaking of being in need, not that I'm saying I need any of those parts of the pyramid satisfied for me to self-actualize, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, not have many friends. I know how to abound, be the center of the party. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. And what I'm saying in this class is that strengthening of me is what Christ does with Himself. That He strengthens us to be content by contenting us with Himself. And when our love for Him develops grows, and that perfect Trinitarian love, we enter into that, we are satisfied with Him, even if you have no more, even if you have nothing else. We are satisfied with Himself when we love Him. And the conclusion is that knowing Christ, even an unseen Christ, is so much better than having a million visible, tangible friends that even if you had none of those friends and only had Christ, invisible though He is, you could be perfectly happy with Him. And I think you'll agree, though, that this is right where the difficulty for us lies. And it's in this word, invisible, unseen. That Christ is not visible, present, right now. And you know, God's not aware that we struggle with that. Why else would this passage of Scripture be here? Why are we reading Paul or Peter writing to people long ago and saying, though you have not seen him, i.e., that's a surprising thing. That's not to be expected that you would love him because that's kind of hard to do if he's not seen. And though you don't see him now, Etc. And it's that second part in verse 9 now that really gives us an explanation of how we can so greatly love an invisible friend like Christ. Though you do not now see him, there's the surprising part. But notice this you believe in him and rejoice with a joy that's inexpressible and filled with glory. It's that believing part, it's that environment of love, it's faith that in one sense, as I will argue, makes Christ as present as anybody else. Yes, faith is necessary, but we'll get to that. Faith is necessary for everything. The question I really want to address now moving forward is, okay, you believe in him by faith. I'm a Christian. I have faith. What does that practically look like tomorrow when I'm, if you're single, I'm laying in bed, I'm alone. And I'm lonely. 
I don't have anyone to call. I've got nothing to do, and I feel miserable. How do I get joy right now, right now, from loving Christ? What do I do? Believe. Okay, how? How do I believe? What do I believe? Or you're a house mom, you're staying home with your children, it's overwhelming, it's late in the day, and you're stressed out, and you're not feeling a joy in Christ. Okay, believe. Believe. How? How do I believe? That's what we want to address, the concrete of how you go about doing this and finding your satisfaction in Christ. What it means to love the invisible Christ, indeed and not in word only, I want to make two points about it. And really the first point is going to be the rest of this lesson. And the second point is going to be the next two lessons. And we'll get to that. But let me just make the first point. How do you practically love an invisible friend like Christ to be satisfied in Him? When I say it's better to have Christ than a quote-unquote real visible friend, how? In what way? And this is the first point. And this is the rest of this lesson. That the difference between loving a visible And an invisible friend is not very great. It's not very great. Let me explain what I mean by that. Consider for just a moment the closest human, visible, tangible, mortal friend that you have. Maybe your spouse, maybe just someone you know, okay? Very close friend to you. This person's visible, right? And I'm trying to convince you that that visible friend that relationship's not better than your friendship with an invisible Christ. Okay. Now, for that friendship to flourish, you say, if I want this friendship to flourish with this person, the thing is, I don't need faith. I just see this person. I talk. I listen. I don't need faith. Or do you? Let me ask you a question. Okay? Your closest human friend. How do you know they are not a Cuban spy? How do you know it? Can you prove that to me? Prove they're not a Cuban spy. We say, well, they're not Cuban. <laughs> well, if the Cuban government wanted to spy on you, would they send a Cuban? They would not, would they? Okay, so my argument's strong. You can't deny that. Okay, you say, well, I've never seen this person interact with the Cuban government. They don't want you to see that because you'd be on to them. You say, well, this person... I mean, they've been my friend a long time. They've always been very kind and gracious to me so that they can get in and get you to divulge your secrets, right? Okay. Well, this is an extreme example. But what I'm contending here is that any meaningful friendship you have requires a leap of faith, okay? When you have friends, if you're going to have a friendship built on trust, that trust is in thoughts. You realize that trust is in intentions, you are just trusting that your best friend's intentions for you are not to spy on you, but that those intentions are really because they like you. But how do you know that? You don't know that. You don't know that. You are leaping in faith based on what you see. You see the body. You hear the words, but you don't see the intentions, and the intentions are the most important part. They're more important than anything else. But you take the leap of faith with trust, with faith and belief in invisible intentions. You are friends with invisible intentions, with invisible thoughts. The body, it's not as important. Your friend could have his hand cut off, and you haven't lost your friend, right? 
Because the hand's not like the most important thing you're befriended with. It's not the body. But the body's the only thing you see. The body's the only visible thing. What you're a friend with is the soul. You're a friend with the thoughts. You're a friend with the intentions. Those are all invisible. You can't put those under a microscope. You believe in those invisible intentions. That's why you're friends, and it couldn't happen otherwise. You see then how similar this actually is to your relationship with Christ. The only difference between your relationship with a human, visible, tangible friend and your relationship with an invisible Christ, the only difference is that you don't see Christ's body. But the body's not the most important thing, but that's, you don't see that. So your friend, you make judgments on those invisible intentions, how? Based on words that come from that person's mouth, or they send you in a text or whatever, and based on deeds, over time they show a consistency of friendliness and kindness to you. You cannot prove they're not a Cuban spy, but you're going on the basis of what you're seeing their body do, and therefore you're making the conclusion of what their invisible intentions are. Now, when it comes to Christ, you are doing exactly the same thing, only you don't see his body, but he's still interacting with you through words and with deeds, just like anyone else, only the words of Christ are coming to you through scripture, you say, well, that's, that's so different than talking. Well, your friends text you, right? Okay? So there's a, a comparison. They send you a letter in the mail. There's a comparison there. So there are words, and you do commune back through prayer, through your pray, praying to Him. Yes, it's not immediate in the sense of how you talk with other people, but it's in effect, it's the same thing that you're doing with human friends. And you look at those words and you say, well, these words are consistent. Uh, they consistently over time seem to show good intentions toward me. And so then you say, well, they're consistent, so I think that Christ is real. I think these are his words. I think I do hear his voice in these words, and I do think he has good intentions toward me. The only leap further you're making with Christ is you're not only believing in visible intentions, but you're believing in an invisible body. That's the only difference. To friends, it's just the intentions. Christ, too, when he's acting, when he's doing things, you are used to, with human friendships, seeing your friends act through means of their body, moving hands and so forth. And that's where you make your judgment of, can you trust this person or not? With Christ, his body's not right here, not in a physical sort of a way. But Christ is doing things just as much and much more than any of your human friends are, and he's doing them in your life. Because why? Because Christ is the sovereign ruler of the universe. So whereas your friend, their actions are the manipulation of matter with their body, Christ's actions are the manipulation of everything with his sovereign will. So he's doing things in your life. It's not like he's far away and he's not there. He's there, it's just not with a physical body. That's the only difference. So... I trust in Christ's activity for the same reason I might trust in your activities, because he's guided all events in my life in such a way that I can't just say they're chance, therefore what? He exists. And he's guided those events in such a way that I can't say he's unkind, therefore what? He has friendly intentions. Believing the body is the only separate thing, his existence. So you see, this first point begins to open up the practical side 
of what it means to love Christ in a real and in a day-to-day kind of a way. And I so much want to poison that notion that in any sense whatsoever, your friendship with any human is more meaningful than your friendship with Christ. Or that your relationship with any person, be it a romance or a family relationship or a close friend, in any way could rival the joy available to you through your relationship with Jesus Christ. And my plan, that was my first point, is that a visible and an invisible friend, they're not as different as you think that they are. They're, very, they're not different very much at all. It's a, it's a body. That's the only thing that's different. Those are not very different. And really the second point, which I want to make in the next two lessons, is somewhat an extension of that first point. Because as I've said, you trust someone's invisible intentions because of their words and their deeds. And I want to take more time to consider what it means to have a living and a vivid relationship with an invisible Christ as you are interacting with him through these invisible or not invisible, well, somewhat, through these words and through these deeds. So the question we're moving into now is, okay, say, Bryce, you've convinced me love is the most powerful motivating force, and you've convinced me, First Peter chapter 1, even if I lost everything else, if I grow in this love for Christ, I will have everything that I need and be fully satisfied. And further here, you've convinced me, even though Christ is an invisible friend, he is a satisfying friend and he's not really that different from human friends in one sense. You've convinced me of all of that. You've convinced me that it's through words and deeds that we interact with him. But I'm going to leave this room and I'm going to go out back to my life and it honestly doesn't feel like Christ is all there and doing all these things. So practically speaking, What does it look like for you to get to a place where you have a relationship with Christ where on a daily basis you are finding immense joy from a living and a real, a real relationship with an invisible Christ? What does that look like on a practical level? That's what we're going to move into. So we're going to consider next week the words of Christ What does it mean to interact with Christ through words? And then after that, the sovereign deeds of Christ. What does it look like to interact with him? Those may be flipped, I can't remember, but one and then the other. And my goal is that you would love Christ in such a way that you find yourself satisfied with Christ and no more. Let me pray. Christ, we are laboring as your people to be consistent in the aim of our life, that it should be the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord, for which we count loss everything else. Please help us to live consistent with that on a Monday and a Tuesday. I pray that you would show us with clarity what does that mean in a cubicle or in a factory. Please help us to see that. What does it mean when we come home in the evening to family or when we're at home with family all day? to be truly satisfied in you, Christ. And we choose to believe and to oust the doubts that would say contrary, that you, Christ, are satisfying, that your love for us, like everything else about you, is perfect, 
and is what we were created and crafted for, I pray that you would help us as your people to grow in our love for you. I pray you'd help us to foster this love even in this class as we contemplate in our minds what a living relationship with you looks like and can look like, and that you would cause us as we're growing in that, our love to, to glow and to shoot forth into every chasm of our inner being a great joy that we might be consistent Christians. I pray you'd help us to suffer well, to lose well, to give up things well, to be different in that way because we have the pearl of surpassing value and we have a treasure hidden in the field that we've found and we sell all for with joy. So please help us to do that, Lord. We lay ourselves, our souls before you and plead we know that you can use our efforts, that you must give the will and the work and I pray that you would for your glory. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.